Hello, I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Today, we've got an episode for you that is part of our Discovery series. This is where we chat with a researcher about something they've done recently that we just find fascinating. I recently came across a story written for The Conversation that was about a book. This book was written by a group of Jewish doctors who were living in the Warsaw Ghetto during the Nazi occupation, and it was about starvation. The book is a collection of scientific papers, like the same kinds that you find published in journals today, that were written by these doctors studying the effects of starvation on the human body. The person who wrote this story for the conversation is Mary Fitzpatrick. She's a researcher at Tufts University and studies the effects of famine, extreme food insecurity, and starvation on the human body. And she is the one who actually discovered this book, Hiding in the Tufts University Library. And I'll let her take it from here. I was trying to find some new sources of evidence about extreme starvation. And I I saw that there was a book actually in the basement of our library that I'd never heard of before. So I went and pulled it off the shelf and it was this this crumbling little book and its pages were just brown and brittle and you could tell it hadn't been opened in a long time. And so I took it off the shelf and it was like crumbling in my hands. So I thought, oh no, I I tried to scan it because I knew every time I turned a page, it would crackle. You could just feel the book deteriorating in my hands as I turned the page. So I immediately knew from the foreword how precious this book was. And I opened it up and I started to read the foreword in it. And the foreword is written by the primary editor, Israel Milikowski. The Torture of Words. I've never felt it as strongly as now when I have to write an introduction to this work. This is an unbelievable moment since the work was originated and pursued under unbelievable conditions. I hold my pen in my hand and death stares into my room. It looks through the black windows of sad empty houses on deserted streets littered with vandalized and burglarized possessions. It is difficult under such conditions to collect one's wits and even more difficult to express one's feelings. My tongue is too pallid to present the magnitude of the defeat. I'm looking for suitable words. It is torture. Israel Milikowski was one of a group of Jewish scientists and doctors who were living inside the Warsaw Ghetto. He was in charge of the medical systems and trying to keep everyone healthy in the Warsaw Ghetto. He was the person who was the brains for all of this, who gathered everyone together and and got everybody working. The Nazis prohibited any sort of research or documentation of what was going on in the ghetto. But in spite of the dangers that doing research posed, a group of 23 Jewish doctors, including Milikowski, defied their captors and started to study what was happening to understand the biological impacts of starvation on their friends and themselves. Most of the doctors in these studies were very influential very well-known, very well-regarded medical doctors, researchers, instructors. They were leaders of medical schools. So you, you had these 23 doctors that would work together on, on these studies. The story of this book is really tied to the story of Nazi Germany. 
It began in 1939 when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. A year later, in 1940, the Nazis enacted pogroms against the Jews living in Warsaw. The result was forcing more than 450,000 Jews into a small walled-off area, just about 1.5 square miles, or 4 square kilometers. Anybody who was not a Jew and living in that quarter had to get out. And so then they built a wall all the way around it. They, they used the Jews themselves to build this wall all the way around it. And the Jews were not allowed to leave that area, even to go search for food. Conditions quickly deteriorated. Eventually, many of them started starving to death. So you have this very, very, very densely populated part of the city. And there was very little sanitation afforded to them. The Nazis would cut off the power for heating randomly, the water, whatever. So sanitation was a real problem. And they had several typhus outbreaks. And when you have people living that closely together with, you'd have three or four families even in, in one room trying to live, you know, just right on top of each other. If you're malnourished, you're so much more vulnerable to any of those diseases. There were some Nazis who wanted to use the Jews as a slave workforce. And as a slave workforce, they needed sufficient food. Another part of the regime wanted simply to just kill the Jews and be done with them. And at that time, it was really, it was getting hard just to feed Germans. So if we're feeding, you know, why would we take food away from a German and feed it to a Jew? So they valued dogs more than they did the Jews. As the beginnings of World War II erupted, the German government instituted rationing, allowing Germans 2,600 calories a day. That's a pretty normal amount. Jews, however, were given just a tiny fraction of that. The Jews were given actually a ration of 180 at one point. That's like half a cookie, right? It's nothing. So they had to survive by smuggling. So they would make little holes in the wall and little kids would go out and they would steal something, sell something, do anything, and then bring food back in. So most of the smuggling was actually done by children, but it was illegal. So if the children were spotted outside of the ghetto, then um, the Nazis would kill them. They would just shoot them outright. So it was dangerous to bring the goods in. Some of the Jews did have money that they had either stashed away or had hidden from the Nazis, and they were able to use it, at least for a while, to buy additional food and up their calorie intake. Traders were allowed to bring stuff into the ghetto with if they had special permits, and then the, so the wealthier could buy that, but that quickly runs out if you don't have a source of income. And they were charged really high prices for everything. Even if some people were able to get small amounts of food through smuggling and trading, there just simply weren't enough calories coming into the ghetto to feed the 450,000 Jews that were trapped inside. The doctors in the book estimate that with smuggling, people were averaging about 800 calories a day. Because they were living in such conditions, mm -hmm. their caloric requirement would be even higher than usual. Oh, interesting. Because it's just bad conditions, the body needs to be active, fighting off things, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, they would need higher calories. So we would estimate maybe 2,100 calories a day an average woman might need. But in those conditions, it might be 2,500, 2,600, but she's getting 800. And that's an average. So some people were getting more and some people were getting less. 
those getting less obviously or dying sooner. So functionally, when you as a nutritionist and person who studies starvation, if you see an average of 800 calories a day, is that a relatively quick death sentence or is that you're going to waste away over the course of a few months? It would take months. Hmm. Um, well, depending on the state of the person to begin with, because your body does adapt slowly, you reduce some of your requirements. And that was one of the things that they actually documented was even though people were starving, you didn't see vitamin deficiencies. Jews weren't allowed to document what was going on inside of the ghetto. I mean, these were war crimes after all. But they were, for some reason, allowed to perform autopsies. They did this using equipment that was often smuggled in. And by doing so, they were able to study the devastating effects of starvation on the human body. People who were starving but had no other disease. So they knew what they were studying was pure starvation. It was not due to a disease. It was not due to illness. Because a lot of times it's hard to decide what is due to the starvation. They found that the body would let certain less essential functions fade away in order to keep very important functions running. So when the body doesn't have enough food coming in to meet your needs, what are the priorities that your body makes? Okay, so you don't need your hair. You're going to lose that. Your skin needs a lot of changing out of cells because they're constantly sloughing away, but that's a lower priority. Certain organs will be prioritized over others. The body will use your fat generally before it starts using muscle if it has enough protein coming in. So there's certain priorities in that, but on a metabolic level as well, there's other little priorities going on. The doctors in the Warsaw Ghetto were certainly not the first people to ever study starvation, but to study it in such a thorough and unfortunately up-close way allowed them to make some very significant discoveries. Some of what they discovered was this adaptation for vitamins. You would expect someone on just such a minimal diet to start showing vitamin deficiencies. So like if you don't have enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. If you don't have enough vitamin A, you get night blindness. We didn't see any of this. They didn't see rickets in young children. While the human body can adapt to a pretty incredible level, it can't cover all the deficiencies that come from severe starvation. At the same time, when they did autopsies, what it looked like was the body could adapt and reduce the need for things like vitamin C, vitamin A, and some of these other vitamins. But certain minerals, they couldn't. And so their body was mining their bones for certain minerals. The researchers were also able to do some small experiments. In one experiment, they looked at their body's ability to absorb calories from sugar. They did one experiment where they provided sugar to someone to see if the cells would still take up the sugar. And immediately the cells took up the sugar. So understanding that they're not getting these vitamin deficiencies but the body was still like a sponge for calories. We understand that calories are, are very important. But they also showed that if you feed people too quickly, then the heart cannot cope because it suddenly you're building up that blood volume and this weakened heart cannot cope. And if this had been known when the concentration camps were liberated, it could have saved a lot of lives because the soldiers came into the concentration camps and they saw these starving people the American soldiers, the British soldiers, the Allied soldiers, and of course they had compassion on them. They reach into their, their rations and they're giving people chocolate bars and all this stuff. And of course people are like, oh, food, finally. 
and a lot of them just gorged themselves and then they died. So they survived all this starvation over years through the war and then died because they ate too much food too quickly. This book had been almost undiscovered for so long, I wondered if there was something of value to modern researchers. And Mary pointed to one finding in particular. So tuberculosis was quite high in the ghetto. But when they would test some of the children that had the edema, they would test negative for tuberculosis, even though they would know a case had tuberculosis. And when they did the autopsies, some of the people who were starving who had tested negative for tuberculosis actually turned out to have tuberculosis. And what it was is in starvation, after a certain point, the body pretty much gives up on immunity. That's not the priority. So when they would do the test, you're seeing if there's an immune response. You're testing for antibodies or something. Yeah, you're testing, see, is the body going to respond to this? And we've seen that when we do studies, the children with Kwashiorkor test negative for HIV. And the question has been, why are they less prone to HIV? But my question now is, is it that they're less prone to HIV or are they giving a false negative? Do they really have HIV and they're just testing negative because they're malnourished? It would be outrageously unethical to starve people in an attempt to understand how the human body adjusts to little or no food. And no one would know this better than the Jewish doctors and researchers living in the Warsaw Ghetto. They were living through and seeing starvation up close and personal. But it was for this reason that the situation they found themselves in was a unique research opportunity in a dark sense. They understood that they could be doing valuable work that would be unthinkable otherwise. The work was incredibly valuable. The type of studies that they did on the type of people that they did, it cannot be replicated. When we go to somewhere where there's a famine and we see people that are starving to death, we don't just study them and allow them to starve to death to see what happens. We feed them, right? So there's no other way for us to see what happens in those last moments, what leads to death. And that is the picture that they gave us in this book. Some of the things were things when I read the book was just like, oh, that makes sense. And I'm piecing together some other bits of information that I've had. They wanted to show the world what happens in starvation. They were scientists. So this is this is something they wanted to do. And I think they've succeeded in that. And they wanted to be immortal. They wanted something to live past them. In July 1942, Nazi forces moved into the Warsaw Ghetto and destroyed the hospitals and other critical services. Many of the patients and doctors were either killed or deported to the concentration camps, and a lot of research was destroyed. With their own demise approaching, the remaining doctors spent the final days of their lives meeting secretly in the cemetery and put together their findings into a series of research articles that they bound together in a book. With the final deportations underway and his own death imminent, Milikowski wrote the following words to close out the book. A last few words to honor you, the Jewish doctors. 
What can I tell you, my beloved colleagues and companions in misery? You are a part of all of us. Slavery, hunger, deportation. Those death figures in our ghetto were also your legacy. And you, by your work, could give the henchmen the answer. Non omnis moriar, which means I shall not wholly die. Eventually, the doctors were able to smuggle this book out of the ghetto to a sympathizer who buried it in the cemetery of the Warsaw Hospital. Less than a year later, all but a few of the 23 authors were dead. After the war, the manuscript was dug up and taken to one of the few surviving authors, Dr. Emil Apfelbaum, and the American Joint Distribution Committee, a charity whose purpose was to help Jewish survivors. Together, they printed the six surviving articles and bound them into a book, along with photos taken in the ghetto. By 1949, the book had been translated into French and distributed to hospitals, medical schools, libraries, and universities across the U.S. One copy of this book made its way to the basement of Tufts University, where the crumbling copy was waiting to be rediscovered by Mary Fitzpatrick. Mary says that while the doctors weren't able to save patients or themselves from the Nazis' crimes, this book, in a sense, preserves the experiences of hundreds of thousands of Jews, and in doing so, makes it so that their suffering not only is not forgotten, but is adding value to the world. The Nazis were trying to completely annihilate them, to erase their existence. And through this work, a piece of them would live on. So now, 80 years later, it was 80 years in October 2022 that he, he was writing this. And even now, as a scientist, I'm using their information. So in doing that, in continuing to contribute to our understanding of malnutrition, they're continuing to save lives 80 years on. I I think that's an amazing legacy. Mary, thank you so much for sharing both your story and the story of Milikowski and his colleagues and everyone else that you came across. Thanks. Appreciate it. We've got quite a few people to thank for this episode. First, to Maggie Villager, who worked with Mary and her colleague Erwin Rosenberg on the original story for The Conversation. Thanks also to our global executive editor, Stephen Kahn, to Alice Mason for our social media, and Soraya Nandy for help with our transcripts. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. And if you like what we do, please do support the podcast and the conversation. Just go to donate.theconversation.com. This episode was produced by Mend Marawani. The show's executive producer is Gemma Ware with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sarl and I am Dan Marino. Thank you so much for listening.